The following sermon, entitled God's Gift of Ministry to Paul, the 15th on the series of the Book of Ephesians, the Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of April 3, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoyed listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open the sacred scriptures this evening to Ephesians chapter 3. We continue our series going through this book. Tonight we will consider verses 7 through 13. We will read the whole of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 3, this is the inspired and therefore infallible word of our God. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We end our Scripture reading at that point. The text for this evening's sermon is verses 7-13. through We will take the time to reread that. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. Unto me, 
who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known it is made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you which is your glory in our series on the book of Ephesians we are in the middle of an inspired digression. For as we saw last time, the Apostle Paul has interrupted himself as it were. Verse 1, he begins, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, and then what follows is not directly connected to that thought. Instead, what follows, verse 1, is an explanation regarding Paul's apostolic office. And he will continue explaining his apostolic office from verses 2 through 13. And then only when he comes to verse 14 does he return to the thought that he started in verse 1. And that's evidenced by the fact that verse 14 begins with the exact same wording that we found in verse 1. Verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And then verse 14, he picks the thought back up. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there he prays again. Everything in between is a digression. Last time we considered the first half of that this digression in which Paul emphasized the revelation of the mystery concerning the Gentiles, how God had revealed to him how the Gentiles would be incorporated into the church. And how they'd be incorporated in such a way that they'd be equal in every respect. Fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, fellow partakers of the same promises as the Jews. And what is more, they would be brought into the church not by becoming Jews, not by being circumcised or having to keep all the Old Testament ceremonial laws, but they would be brought in by faith in Jesus Christ. And the focus last time, the emphasis last time, was on Paul receiving this knowledge concerning the mystery. Now, in verses 7-13, through the focus shifts from the receiving to the proclaiming. From the hearing and seeing to the speaking and causing others to see. For here in these verses, Paul talks about his calling to preach this mystery. To preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And what stands out in this passage is how the Apostle Paul viewed this calling. 
viewed it as a privilege, as a gift from God. And that's what we want to look at this evening as we consider Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13. We use as our theme tonight God's gift of ministry to Paul. God's gift of ministry to Paul. First, we will look at the high calling for a lowly saint. Second, at the significant fruit of his ministry. And then third, the pastoral desire for the Ephesians. For the world, the ideal in life is to find something that you love doing and make that your vocation. In other words, find something that you enjoy and somehow turn that into a career so that it feels less like work and more like a privilege to be getting paid for whatever it is that you are doing. Well, evidently, that's how the Apostle Paul largely viewed his calling as a minister. Only this was not something that he sought out and found, but this was something that was given to him. In other words, the Apostle Paul viewed his ministry, his calling to be a minister and apostle, as a gift, as a privilege. And that comes out in the language of this passage. Verse 7, Paul says, "...whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me." Verse 8, "...unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach." And now when Paul speaks of this gift of grace, he's not using the word grace in the sense of God's saving grace whereby He was delivered from His sinful past whereby He was converted that day on the road to Damascus and made a child of God. That's what Paul usually has in view when he speaks of grace. But here, when he refers to the gift of grace, he's talking ultimately about His ministry, about the calling that God has given to Him, about His apostleship. What he has in view is the fact that God not only rescued him from his spiritual darkness and blindness, but on top of that, made him an apostle. Made him a minister of the Gospel. And he speaks of this as a gift of grace in the sense that this is a a blessed and undeserved privilege that's been given to him. That's how Paul viewed his ministry. That's how Paul viewed the fact that he had received all of those revelations concerning the mystery. Because you see, verses 1-6 through are still in view here. He's continuing the same thought. He's already told us about how God has made known unto him this mystery. And he views that as a privilege, as a gift, especially because he had no right to knowing, for knowing these things. And what is more, These were truths that were hidden, concealed, at least largely hidden from view all throughout the Old Testament. And they've only now been made known. They've only now been unveiled to Paul and thus to the church. What a gift. And what a gift to be able to then take that and proclaim it to others. Because that was indeed Paul's calling to preach. He says 
in verse 8, unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles. In other words, God did not reveal this to Paul and then tell Paul, see that thou tellest no man. Keep it a secret, Paul. Make sure you don't broadcast this far and wide. But instead, just the opposite. Paul, I'm telling you this so that you might take it to all the nations, that you might proclaim it far and wide. And again, Paul saw this as a a gift, as a, a privilege that he had been set apart for this work, that this was now his life's calling. That is what's on the foreground in this passage. The gift of ministry that God gave to Paul. But now to become more specific, there are two things, two factors that amplify Paul's sense of privilege regarding this gift that he had been given. First, his own unworthiness for it. And second, the subject matter of his ministry. Each of them made this all the more astounding for the Apostle Paul. First, his unworthiness for this calling. And that comes out from the fact that the Apostle Paul refers to himself as less than the least. That's verse 8. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints. If one was concerned that the Apostle Paul was full of pride when he said what he did back in verse 4, whereby when you read my epistle, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. If one was concerned that that was indicative of pride, verse 8 dispels that thinking. Because verse 8 is an expression of genuine humility. Not a feigned humility. Not just this show of trying to be meek, but a real genuine humility. And this is genuine humility. That this is genuine humility comes out from Paul's willingness to bend, really break the rules of grammar to convey the thought that he is trying to get across. They say that because those words, less than the least, are really an excellent translation of one word in the original in which Paul takes the word least and adds a comparative on top of it. Paul's really saying here that I am the leaster of all saints or the, the more least of all saints. And he says it that way because he's trying to convey the point. And this is not just an isolated incident of Paul speaking this way. He he viewed himself this way consistently. For example, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, he wrote, For I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle. And if we ask Paul, why do you speak this way about yourself? He would tell us, without 
minimizing His presence in, He would emphasize His sinful past. I am the least of all saints. Less than the least of all saints. Because I was a blasphemer. I denied Jesus Christ. I said there's no way He's the Son of God or the promised Messiah. And what's worse, I was injurious. I was insolent. I was a proud, self-righteous Pharisee who thought there's no way anyone else can climb my Everest on top of which I stand. And what's worst is that I persecuted the church. I sought to destroy the very body of Christ. And for that reason, I am less than the least of all saints. And for that reason, I am unworthy of this gift of the ministry. That's the point here. Paul recognizes this is a privilege. An, an astounding privilege. Because I have no right to be put in this position. It's one thing that Christ saved me by His grace. But you would think that, okay, I've been saved, but on account of my sinful past, surely that disqualifies me from ever having an office in the church, of ever being given a position of service in the church. Yet Christ not only saved me, He then made me an apostle. He put me into this position. And it's in light of His sinful past that He cannot get over this. This was astounding to Paul. And it only amplified that sense of privilege for him. And if we ask, why would God use such a man as Paul? Well, the reason is so that God would receive all the glory. And Paul himself gives God the glory here. Gives God the glory when he says what he does at the end of verse 7, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me. And then he adds this, by the effectual working of His power. And what the Apostle Paul is saying there is that it was by God's grace that I was enabled, empowered to serve Him in this capacity. So that it was not only a gift that He gave me this office, put me in this position, but it's a gift that He's given me the grace to function in it. What he's saying here is the same thing he says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, where he says, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And what Paul is saying here is all the glory, all the credit goes to God. Both for giving me this office as well as in enabling me to serve Him in it. So the first thing that amplified Paul's sense of privilege was his own sense of unworthiness for this office. Second, what amplified this even more was the subject matter of his ministry. What was he to preach? Verse 8, that I should preach among the Gentiles 
the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to be sure, the riches that are found in Christ are unsearchable, unfathomable, or literally, they cannot be tracked, they cannot be traced. For who can trace the identity of Jesus Christ? Who can wrap their minds around how He is one divine person with both a human nature and a divine nature? Who can track His saving work? That is, who can fathom a life of perfect obedience to the whole of God's law? Who can fathom suffering an eternity's worth of wrath in the space of three hours? Who can search out His resurrection? And the fact that Christ was able not only to lay down His life, but then take it up again. Who can track all of His work that He now performs as our ascended Lord as He sits upon His throne in heaven? Who can measure all the blessings of salvation that He has earned and now freely gives to us by His Spirit? The riches of Christ are unsearchable. And this is what Paul gets to preach. This is the subject matter of his ministry. His privilege is not that he gets to tell you how to save some money here. His gift is not not that he gets to tell you about some treasure that's sitting there waiting for you that is some earthly treasure. But he gets to proclaim the treasures that are found in Christ. That's what he gets to tell everyone about. That's his life's calling. And he viewed it as a privilege. This is a gift that I've been called to this. And what is more, he was able to tell others about the mystery. That's verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. And we've already referred back to that mystery that's We explained last time as it's set forth in verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ. A mystery that was largely concealed, hidden throughout the Old Testament, but now has been made known. It's been revealed. And the Apostle Paul was the one who would be making this known to others. That's what he says in verse 9. And to make all men see in that Those words, make see, come from the Greek word for light. He's saying, I've been tasked to illuminate this mystery, to to shine a light upon it. And it'd be one thing if he was shining a light upon some truth that had been clearly understood by the church all throughout her history. That in and of itself is a high calling. But for the Apostle Paul, there was something more. He was called by God to bring clarity where there had been confusion. 
He was called by God to illuminate some truth that had been dark and murky and hidden from view. And again, this only underscored, this only amplified his sense of privilege. He viewed his ministry as a gift from God. And that has application for us. That has application for any who are in a position that involves teaching God's Word to others. Whether as an office bearer, whether as a teacher in the Christian school, whether as a parent, or some other station in life in which we are called to bring God's Word to others, to explain it to them. How do we view that work? It's a privilege. Not a burden. Yes, it may involve hard work, but ultimately it's a gift from God. And that has special application for the ministry of the Gospel. That's the main thing in view here. So that this passage teaches a minister how he must view his own work. Not as a chore. Not just as a way to earn a living. But as a privilege. And knowing that it is such a privilege, there's encouragement for the young men here tonight. There's encouragement that you consider the call to the ministry. Whether God would have you to serve Him in this capacity. Proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. So there's instruction for us regarding how we view the work itself. But there's also instruction with regard to how we view the worker. The one who's called to Proclaim these truths. That has application again for a minister and how he views himself. He must not be filled with pride, but he must have this same humility. Because understand, a minister cannot at the same time exalt Christ and exalt Himself. You cannot have both at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. Now this also has application for the congregation and how they view their minister. He is but a simple earthen vessel. He's a jar of clay. He's a sinner just like you. Therefore, when we look at ministers, we must not become enamored with the man himself. Respect his office, yes, certainly. But not enamored with the man himself. Because like the Apostle Paul, the minister must say, I am less than the least 
of all saints. And what spurs us on, whether as a minister or a congregation, to have that proper view concerning the work, concerning the One who proclaims the Word, is the significant fruit that is produced by such a ministry, by God's grace. And that's what we need to consider next. The significant fruit of Paul's ministry. And that's, I believe, the way to understand the subsequent verses and how they relate back to the main point of the passage. And there are four things in this passage that we can view as the significance, as the fruit of Paul's ministry. First, the fruit was the establishment of a congregation at Ephesus. And that comes out in the historical context. That's really so much on the foreground that it's possible that we fail to see that as part of the fruit. The very fact that Paul is able to write a letter to the saints at Ephesus. And not just a few scattered saints, believers meeting in a home, but a congregation, a church. And this is quite something. Because we're talking about Ephesus. We're talking about that city that was characterized by idolatry. They were known for their worship of the goddess Diana. They were wholly given over to the practice of black magic and every other form of idolatry. This is a a spiritual wasteland. This is a city full of spiritual darkness. This is the last place on earth you would expect to find a church. And yet, by God's grace, there's a congregation at Ephesus. How did God plant that church there? Through the preaching of the unsearchable riches of Christ. God used the Apostle Paul as a servant, as an instrument in his hand to establish this congregation there. And is there any fruit more significant than that? It was by means of the preaching that God called His people in Ephesus out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's the fruit. That's the significance of Paul's ministry and the ministry of the Word. And really, and we start with this one because it's foundational for the other three that follow. So that first of all is the fruit, the significance of Paul's ministry. God used it to establish local congregations. Second, the significance is that through Paul's ministry, God's wisdom was made manifest even to the angels. And we say that in light of the admittedly confusing verse 10, at least confusing at first glance. Verse 10 reads as follows, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. If we are going to understand this verse, we need to get our bearings. 
We need to find the subject. The subject is at the very end. The manifold wisdom of God. The verb is in the middle. Might be known. And really the idea is might be made known. So we have the wisdom of God being made known. And then there are the two prepositional phrases. Unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places and by or through the church. So if we put it all together, what verse 10 is saying is that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known through the church unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Well, that raises the next question. What are these principalities and powers in heavenly places? Well, that expression, principalities and powers, refers to rulers and authorities. Only these are not earthly rulers or earthly authorities because the Apostle Paul speaks of them as principalities and powers in heavenly places. And those words, in heavenly places, points us to the fact that he's talking about the angels who are called principalities and powers, rulers and authorities because our sovereign God carries out, He exercises His rule and His authority through the angels. For the angels are the the ministers, the agents of His providence. Indeed, we are talking about the angels who serve God willingly. Not the fallen angels, not the demons as some have interpreted this passage. But the angels who in fact serve God. So now take it and put it all together. What verse 10 is teaching us is that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known through the church unto the angels. How does Paul's ministry fit into this? It's the through the church part. For you see, the angels in heaven have a deep interest in all things spiritual. They are fascinated, really, with the plan of redemption. And they're ever looking into it, ever trying to understand it. And understand, like us, they have to wait for the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in order to see it, in order to understand it. Well, they would come to know God's redemptive plan through the church, through the preaching of Paul. Now, we must not misunderstand this as though the angels were listening into Paul's preaching or that they're listening into the preaching tonight trying to put this all together and figure it out. But the idea is rather this, that through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, the church would be established. Congregations would be built up. Congregations made of both Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles would be equal in every respect. Who would be, both be brought into the church in the same way And the angels of heaven could observe all of this. They could see God's plan coming to fruition. And by looking at the church that had been established, that had been formed, 
they would come to know the manifold wisdom of God. That's what verse 10 is saying. And note briefly that phrase, the manifold wisdom of God. I wish we had more time to talk about it really. We could preach an entire sermon on just that phrase. That word manifold means multicolored, variegated. It's talking about the brilliance, the splendor of God's wisdom. His wisdom in reconciling both Jews and Gentiles to Himself and thus bringing them together so that there's peace and unity among these people who were previously at odds with each other. In that, we see the wisdom of our God. And that was what was made known to the angels by the church through the church. And that's a part of the significance, a part of the fruit of the Apostle Paul's ministry. That in the second place. Third, the fruit, the significance, was that Paul's ministry served the realization of God's eternal purposes. And that is where we bring in verse 11. Verse 11 reads, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now what this verse is telling us is that manifestation of the wisdom of God to the angels through the church, that happened according to God's eternal purpose. That is, according to His eternal decree, His counsel, His plan. It was all going exactly according to plan. A plan at which the heart and center was Jesus Christ Himself. For the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, says, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What the Spirit is teaching us by that expression is that Christ is the the very core, the, the heart of God's plan. Everything in God's plan is ultimately connected and tied back to Jesus Christ. Everything fits into this plan as it relates back to Christ. And again, that's true of this mystery of Christ and how it's in and through Christ that the Gentiles would be brought in the same way the Jews were brought in. Not by becoming a Jew. Not by works of the law. But by faith in Christ. It all connects back to Him. And it is all a display of God's wisdom. Again, if we ask, what does this have to do with Paul's ministry and his labors? Well, God realized this eternal purpose through His preaching. For as we said, it was through the preaching that God established churches and the establishment of those churches then served to make known the wisdom of God. And in making known the wisdom of God even unto angels, God's purposes were realized. So you see, these are building on top of each other. That's the significance of the preaching because at the front end of that is the preaching is the chief means of grace. Whereby God is realizing His plan. Whereby He is bringing His people to salvation. And again, all this underscores what a gift. What a privilege for the Apostle Paul or for any minister of the Gospel 
to be a part of this, to have a place in God's plan in this way. But now there's still more. Because not only does God establish churches by means of the preaching, not only does He manifest His wisdom unto even the angels, not only does He realize His eternal purpose, but fourth and finally, it's by means of the preaching that believers are brought into the enjoyment of the highest imaginable communion. They are given access to God's throne of grace. And that's where we, that's how we tie verse 12 into the main point. Verse 12, we read this, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. We have access. That is, in Jesus Christ, we have the freedom to come into God's presence without being consumed with fear that God is going to destroy us in His wrath. We have the freedom to come into His presence and expect to receive His favor. We have the the freedom to speak to this God at any time of day, no matter where we are, without any weight in line. That's access and that's an astounding privilege. And what is more is the the boldness and the confidence we can have in approaching our God. The Apostle Paul says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. And that boldness is quite something. Because the word boldness in the original is two words sandwiched into one. All telling. You may tell God all that is in your heart, child of God. Now to be sure, as we heard this morning, there are some things that are too frivolous for prayer. Some things that are not appropriate to pray. But nevertheless, this passage stands. We have boldness in that we can pour out our hearts before God. We can tell Him that innermost thought. We can express to Him what's going on inside our hearts without being afraid that He's going to turn us away. And we have confidence in this. The Apostle Paul says by inspiration, we can be absolutely certain that our God will hear us. And this too is a part of the fruit and the significance of the preaching. Because how do we have this access? The passage tells us by faith in Christ. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. We certainly don't have this access in and of ourselves. We don't have the right to come into God's presence at any moment. Instead, what we deserve is to be turned away. What we deserve if we try to stand in God's presence is that He does send judgment. That He does send wrath upon us. But as those who believe in Christ, as those who are united to Christ, 
We can now come in the name of Christ and on the basis of Christ's saving work and come and speak to our God. And that all relates back to the preaching because it's by means of the preaching that God works that faith in our hearts. So again, at the front end of this is God's use of the ministry of the Gospel, of the preaching of the unsearchable riches of Christ to bring to pass all of these other things. And that makes us an astounding gift. A wondrous privilege that was given to Paul, the Apostle, and given to every minister of the Gospel. And it was knowing that this was indeed a privilege that Paul then goes on by inspiration of the Spirit to express his pastoral desire for the Ephesians. That brings us to verse 13. Verse 13 is Paul's pastoral desire for the Ephesians. He says, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul speaks here of his tribulations. He's talking about the fact that he is in prison. That's what he said at the beginning of this chapter. Verse 1, For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. He's under house arrest in Rome. And his concern is that the Ephesian Christians are going to become discouraged on account of his imprisonment. He's concerned that they are going to lose heart. That they are going to faint when they think about how Paul's sitting there in prison under house arrest. To be more specific, Paul's concern is that the Ephesian Christians are going to interpret that as evidence that the cause of Christ has failed. That God's purpose, that His design to bring the Gentiles into the church is being thwarted, or at the very least, it's been put on halt. It's been paused. Because the great apostle to the Gentiles is in prison. What are we going to do? How is the Gospel going to go forth? What's going to happen to them? It's in light of that that the Apostle Paul says what he does. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulation. Do not be discouraged. Do not lose heart. Do not throw up your hands in despair. Why? Because of everything I have just said. Verse 13 begins with the word, wherefore. Paul's drawing a conclusion. He's wrapping this all up. Wherefore, in light of everything that I have just told you, I desire that you do not faint. Don't lose heart. 
Because look at all that God has accomplished. Look at all of the fruit that has come about through this preaching. And do not worry about me. Because it was all worth it. Even if I never escape this prison. Even if I must wear these shackles till the day I die. It's a small price to pay. So that the Gospel could go forth. Faint not, Ephesians. And faint not because the reality is that God was using even that, His imprisonment, His tribulation, for the spread of the Gospel. Paul expresses that elsewhere in his letter to the, Ephesians, to the Philippians, which was written during this same imprisonment, his first imprisonment in Rome. Paul writes to the Philippians, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me, he's talking about how he's a captive in Rome, the things which have happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the Gospel. Because we serve a wise God. A God who in His wisdom can take even this and use it to make sure the Gospel reaches Rome and that it goes out from there. And it's because all of this is true that you do not need to faint. Do not lose heart. That's Paul's pastoral desire for the Ephesians. And that's the whole reason, at least a good part of the reason, for this digression. The Spirit led Paul to interrupt his own thinking, as it were. To push pause on his main line of reason and to insert verses 12 through 13. The Spirit led Paul to digress. Why? Because the Ephesians must know all of this. And they must know all of this so that they do not view Paul's imprisonment as evidence that contradicts the main point of this whole epistle. What's the main point? That the church is blessed with unspeakable blessings. That God is lavishing His grace upon us. And the Ephesians must not be tempted to think, well, how do I reconcile the fact that Paul's in prison to this message? If we're so blessed, why is he in prison then? And so the Spirit leads Paul to digress. So that they see no contradiction between Paul being in prison and the fact that as the church, we are truly blessed in Christ Jesus with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And we too must see and understand this. So that when we see others suffering for the cause of Christ, 
so that when we ourselves must make sacrifices, when we must sacrifice our time, our energies, our resources, and perhaps one day even our life for the sake of Christ and His Gospel, that we do not lose heart that we do not faint or become discouraged, but confess it's all worth it. It's a small price to pay so that the unsearchable riches of Christ, that glorious Gospel might go forth. So that the children in the church might be raised, might be instructed in this glorious Gospel. That is how we are to view the suffering and the sacrifice that we are sometimes called to make. And praise be to God that this was the mind of Christ concerning such sacrifice and suffering. Because he had to suffer something much worse than imprisonment in Rome. He had to suffer God's wrath for our sin. He had to endure the anguish and the torments of hell on account of our guilt. And though He knew all of His life long that's what was waiting for Him at the cross, He did not faint. He did not lose heart. He did not become discouraged. But instead, He pressed on. And He endured it all. So that the church might be established on the basis of His own saving work. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known as we see that wisdom on full display in Christ. So that God's eternal purposes might be realized. His eternal electing purposes whereby He chose His people in Christ to be saved on the basis of His sacrifice. And so that we might be brought into the most blessed communion imaginable so that we might have access to God on the basis of His work. Yes, we can look at Paul and see one who is willing to suffer for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But ultimately, look at Christ and His willingness to suffer and the sacrifice that He made for the salvation of His church. Amen. Let us pray. Father in Heaven, blessed be Thy name. Thou art the all-wise God. There is none like unto Thee. Thou art the God of our salvation. And we thank Thee that Thou hast saved us on the basis of Christ's work by means of the preaching 
of the Gospel. Cause Thy Word to continue to go forth and use it mightily that it might bring forth wondrous fruit. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.